We Saw a Thing is a movie podcast about remakes and sequels. We saw a thing and talked about it. The following conversation has been edited for brevity. Uh, we have a special guest. Chris, would you like to introduce our guest today? Yeah, for sure. So we're talking about the Da Vinci Code and the subsequent two movies. Um, but my dad, Tim, is uh, on with us for this episode because he has a master's degree in biblical theology. Isn't that right, Dad? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. And as you can tell, he's super thrilled about it. <laughs> you, you seem super ashamed of your of your life study here, Tim. Oh, I'm I'm real excited to be here, guys. So. <laughs> I love that our first guest was like he sounds like he was just roped in, and we dragged him into our studio. I was. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he did tell me that uh, he forgot to watch the movie, but I know that he has seen these movies, at least the first one, and I know that he's read at least the first book, uh, and he's got way more, like, you know, religion knowledge than we do, so I guess it's forgiven that you didn't watch yeah, the movie? Yeah, it's exciting to know that you have a, a lot of information on religion. <laughs> yeah, that's always, uh, it's always a thrill to talk to people about religion. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, it's good that you, you say that about the first movie, at least, because that's the one I... Chris, I have to admit, I, I did not mind this movie. Yeah, I don't like these movies. <laughs> I don't like any of them. I think the first one is definitely the best of the three, but they they seem like less fun national treasure. I would much rather just watch Nick Cage lose his mind and go on a treasure hunt. And that's what these movies are. They're just like very, very, very serious national treasure. Well, I, de- I mean, yes, I agree. Putting Nick Cage in anything is more fun. <laughs> yes. But I, <laughs> I think that um, out of all of these, like the first time I saw The Da Vinci Code, I fell asleep through the whole thing and then somehow still knew the ending. I don't know how that happened. Because all of the exposition is done through dialogue, which is super boring. But it's the same reason I didn't read the Dan Brown books is because I had a really hard time with the way he describes things. He seems to like attack for pages the least interesting thing about a scene to me. Dad, I don't know if you found that when you because I know you've read them. Well, I, I, I enjoyed the book. Um, I enjoyed all the books. I read all of them, sadly. <laughs> but the, the thing to me is that uh, in a day when conspiracies rule, it really fits. It's a really timely book. It's a really timely movie. Well, that actually gets into one of the questions that we wanted to ask you was like, it's really portrayed in the first movie that Jesus Christ having a family is like this negative thing that would really impact the Catholic Church in on like a very base level and really rock religion. And I don't quite understand that because Jesus Christ having a wife and a family doesn't seem like it would fly in the face of really any of it. So what is it about that part of the story that makes it a conspiracy or interesting in that way? Well, think about it in terms of Jesus having children. Um, if you're the apostles and, and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, what does that make the Son of Jesus? There's a really interesting uh, storyline in a, a series on uh, Amazon Prime where there's a group that have uh, tried to isolate Jesus' offspring so that they can maintain his DNA with the idea that uh, sometime in the future, the son, grandson, great-grandson, and so on, one of them would become the new Messiah. Except that uh, 2,000 years later, what they end up with, uh, because of the inbreeding, is this babbling idiot. 
but the conspiracy the conspiracy is that uh, if he has children, um, well, somewhere around the line, somewhere down the line, we've got several dozen or more people who apparently have the DNA of Jesus. And that just doesn't fit in with church theology. You know, Jesus was the Son of God. He was the one that uh, died on the cross uh, for the redemption of the masses. And, well, what what if one of his other sons did, you know? I mean, uh, then there's the other idea that uh, if Jesus was married, uh, what does that do for the celibacy of the priests? Uh, Really, him having a family and being married and having a family is really destructive to the whole tradition of the Catholic Church. And and when we're talking about that tradition, as as we watch the rest of the world progress, why, why is that tradition still so important? That's a hell of a good question there, Jay. <laughs> I, I think I'll pass. No, 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 that's absolutely fine. Look, all of our questions, and I say this to Chris all the time, all of our questions can have the answer— I don't know. And that is totally okay because we're, you know, we're talking about a Ron Howard movie with Ian McKellen and Tom Hanks at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But it does, for me at least, Chris, I know you didn't love the movies. Um, You know, Tim, it sounds like you enjoyed the book. I did not find those exposition dumps to be homework at all to get through. I kind of enjoyed exploring and it gave me these big questions of like, okay, but, you know, maybe the traditions then are different, but what about today? And is it out of left field to say that maybe Jesus had brothers and sisters, maybe Mary and Joseph, like, kept on building their family? It it shouldn't be that crazy to say that maybe some genealogy from Jesus Christ has passed down, and the idea that maybe there is another person still linked to that person isn't as tremendously detrimental as possible. I don't know. Um, But then I guess we're getting off the, I don't want to, I hate using the word mythology when it comes to religion, (laughs) especially Christianity. Uh, I grew up Catholic (laughs) myself. Yeah. Um, But there is a belief in a supernatural omnipresence and you would not want to make that omnipresence human really at all well i was that was uh, uh the big problem that the christian church had over the um centuries trying to decide uh just exactly who was jesus christ was he the son of god and, and what did that mean what is the trinity you know father son holy ghost does that mean we have three gods um or uh just three variations of the same god you know it's just there there are so many so many questions that come as you try to resolve some of those issues. And, and, and in fact, we won't do that today. <laughs> no, we, we won't. We won't even get close to that today. No, no. If no. we're being completely fair. And in fact, I'd appreciate if we just stayed away from that today, if that's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Absolutely. So, Dad, there was some, some implications in the Da Vinci Code, the movie that the woman who ends up being the very distant descendant of Christ, she seemed to have some, like, abilities. 
there's a scene in a park where she has a conversation with a homeless man who's clearly like trying to get high. And the, the implication is that her having a conversation with him in a very serious way has like very positively impacted his life. There's some scenes where like, you know, she eases Tom Hanks. Uh, he's having a panic attack because they're trapped in a small space. There's some implications that maybe she has some ability to like heal or has some abilities as far as like some Christ-like abilities, I guess. Not to mention there's some shots fired directly at these two. And it seems like you can't, you can't kill this person a little bit. Like she's got these superpowers where you're not going to be able to take this person down. (laughs) And then there's the joke at the end where she like steps into that water fountain to see if she can walk on water. And it's like, nope, can't walk on water and walks away. And that's like a big laugh. That's a great joke. (laughs) That is quality. Like I'm serious. That was a great joke. And then immediately she's like, maybe it'll work with wine. And I'm like, yes, girl, get your wine. (laughs) She gets very comfortable with basically being like new Jesus really quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't think she's new Jesus. I don't think that that is the thing. It's just a realization that you have this thing in you that is monumental because of the church is the most powerful thing on the planet uh you know the vatican and the pope wield so much power in this in this universe as we learn in angels and demons which you're right chris each movie goes down in like level of junk very quickly but i did like the first one the the fun of the first and second movie to me was the exploration of the cities that they're in the landmarks were really cool. Some of like the geography that they travel in the first two movies was really fun. I liked that they kind of delved into different aspects of the Catholic Church. And I also liked that there was a lot of like fiction melded with, you know, like, hey, that's a real place, but let's mix some fiction in with this as well. So like the thing that got murky for me was the level of mix of fiction and nonfiction. Dad, was that like a little bit clearer in the books? Was there a clear distinction between what was reality as far as history goes and what Dan Brown kind of maneuvered conveniently for the kind of story he wanted to tell? Well, I mean, that would be like a guy telling you a joke and then explaining it to you afterwards. Yeah, but like, I think that in like current North American societal norms, it's very easy to read a book like The Da Vinci Code and be like, I know about Catholicism now. Is there like a danger in in mixing fiction with that kind of fact? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. There was a lot of people that came away from those books um, uh, with all kinds of uh, uh, conspiracy theories filling their heads. And and that's the, that's a mistake. I think Dan Brown actually had to come out and say a couple of times, hey, my books are fiction. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, let's face it. He's a symbologist who gets pulled into a terrorist hunt. He's into symbols. This would never happen, people. And he's basically trying to stop the spread of a virus in the third movie. Like, that that third movie was bonkers, and not in a good way. Okay, the third movie is considerably terrible, and... I, I like I just don't understand what happened. I got the feeling that that everyone involved in the first movie was like that was fun. We're friends. We should do this and get paid again. And then did it again and then we're like that was also fun and we're friends. We should get paid to be friends again. And then just had like progressively less ideas to follow it through. But it also each one did say something like the Da Vinci Code said the biggest threat 
to the church is the idea of a woman being married to Jesus and having offspring to Jesus, and, and specifically female. The second one, the threat to the church was science. The third one, the threat to everybody was this population controlling virus, and it totally went off the deep end. However, we did have the uh, the Dante's Inferno, which is the idea of hell and these levels of hell. And that was the only thing that even really touched on religion, but I don't even think that was in the Bible. Tim, maybe you could speak to that. Like Dante's representation, that that actually was not from the pages of the good book. No, no, absolutely not. It's an allegorical picture of what uh, one man thought. I mean, prophetic, so-called prophetic people all through history have had visions of uh, what they expected things to look like. Um, even today, there are people who have those uh, near-death experiences who come back and have a vision of, of heaven, and some even have a vision of hell, I think are are um, subjective and are um, kind of colored by the things they've heard or read or experienced over their lifetime. I mean, it's an allegorical or picture. your own fears. Exactly, exactly. I was just going to ask, I, I didn't know if uh, Dante was kind of considered a prophet. I didn't know if that was a, a, a thick in the day. Was that, do you, uh, and I'm, I'm not saying that you are a, <laughs> like a scholar of Dante. I'm just asking uh, if you know if, that's what he was kind of referred to as? Well, that's another really good question, Jay. Oh, well, we don't have to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't actually know much about Dante, but I've, I've read some of... Uh, I don't know much about him either. Yeah, I read some of the Inferno, and it's really interesting stuff. But people have been writing allegorical stuff uh, um, for centuries um, in, in a way to portray... Um, what they consider to be truths in a, in, in a way that common people would understand. Um, you know, that's why Jesus spoke in parables in the New Testament. It was a way of conveying a truth um, that the average person would be able to get a hold of. That's awesome. <laughs> I guess that speaks a little bit to what we were saying about Dan Brown specifically and, and the Da Vinci Code as a book. Like, would you say that there's a danger in kind of even looking at the teachings of Jesus and taking them literally because they're meant to be parables and allegories? Tim, I, I, I think, Tim, I can field this question. <laughs> um, yes. Yes, Chris. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Jay. My heart was beating so fast. Uh, <laughs> no, sorry. Go ahead, Tim. I, 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 I just, uh, you know, just thought it would be funny to say. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Let's stick with the funny. Mo moving on to the next question. <laughs> you know what my favorite part about these kind of movies are? Because this is like the treasure hunt kind of movie, like like you brought up National Treasure, which I adore. And obviously the Indiana Jones movies. I love how many journals they have to have. No matter what they're doing, they have a journal full of all kinds of stuff. Every symbol, let me go through my journal of all my symbols, but it's like only pertains to that one hunt for in the Da Vinci Code. Uh, I guess it's the Holy Grail. That's always interesting to me in stories like this. And like, Jay, you and I are rewatching the, the series Supernatural right now. And like, I've been kind of noticing there's a there's a theme that runs through a lot of stories like this, which is 
well, the world's ending and it's the future, but we should definitely look like 600 years ago at some guy who scrawled in a journal because that guy's got the answer. <laughs> like, oh, my God. If somebody looked in my journal. It always just happens to be on their shelf, right? So, like, in Da Vinci Code, they go visit Gandalf and he's just got all the right books. So it was fine. And he did have all the right books. That was one of my – I really liked Ian McKellen in this film. Like, I – I like that he turned out to be the twist bad guy. And I, I just, I don't know what you didn't see in the first film. It was fine. Ah. I'm not saying it's a great movie. I'm just saying, like, popping it on a rainy day, I may even revisit it. I'm glad you're not saying it's a great movie because it's not a great movie. <laughs> like, we can talk about the two other, like, really not great movies because, I, one, I really enjoyed the God Particle aspect of... Angels and Demons, because that at, I, I don't think it was at the time, but in the last five years, the God particle has become a very important idea in the science community. And I think we may have even reached the God particle uh, in modern day science. The God particle thing in Angels and Demons kind of bugged me because like it was really like, let's take an unfortunately named thing and run with it as the bad guy. And that was a problem that I had with with that fundamentally on on the storytelling level was just like, oh, we'll just take the thing called God and we'll take the religious people who would be offended by that and just have a story. And so it didn't seem like there was a ton of basis there for me. It always drives me nuts when they take a scientific breakthrough and they make it, now this is a nuclear weapon that is going to destroy the world. That's not always great. And you've got, you know, a nuclear physicist or, you know, a particle physicist who now all of a sudden knows things about, you know, religion and, and the Vatican. It just randomly happens to know all of these things, which is the same in the first one, right? Like Tom Hanks is continually paired with people who would have absolutely no knowledge base about a lot of the stuff that they're talking about. And then they're just immediately geniuses about it. The conversations just become, I'm a smart person who knows a random fact. And then the other person replies with, yeah, but also this other random fact that adds to your first random fact, and then the puzzle is solved. And I just, I find that kind of dialogue so grating. And I think that's why I don't like these movies. It's just that that strips a lot of the fun out of it for me because they don't get to be characters. They're just mouthpieces for plot points. Yes. At no point do I give a shit about any of them. Like, the first one is a murder mystery about the guy's friend, and I don't care. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. I thought the first one wasn't homework, but the sequels definitely are. Yeah. Like, the exposition dumps move just like I'm going to explain some big thoughts to you, then we're going to do something that has some sort of action scene. In Angels and Demons, it immediately turns into seven. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> We're well, we got to save this priest at this place, and then we got to save that. We got to like figure out what the sin is and like go to there or what the symbol is from the Illuminati, which was kind of creative. Yeah, that you know, the evil priest who wanted to be pope to bring science to make it more progressive also brought the Illuminati out. Like, this is deep craziness as far as like the bad guy. In this story. Yeah. And dad, that was something we wanted to ask you is because in Angels and Demons, it really does seem like the the righteous good guys are the Catholic Church and the evil, evil bad guys are the Illuminati. Is there like historical or like religious basis for the fact that like the Illuminati is like this secret, like evil society that's kind of got its fingers and all the bad in the world? Well, I mean, the Illuminati was started um, 
I think in the mid 1700s. It was set up uh, by a guy who really wanted to set up a new world order. So you could imagine that would be in a little bit of conflict with the Catholic Church, who already felt they were in charge of the whole world. So, uh, yeah, there'd be a little bit of um, bad blood between them. Uh, but obviously the Catholic Church has got, you know, a lot more history than the Illuminati um, and more people than the places of power. I mean, my thing with, with angels and demons when we're watching that was my brain just kept on going to, is everybody a bad guy in this movie? Because I was like, okay, the only person in this movie who is good is Tom Hanks. I, I just kept on seeing like, that guy's got to be a bad guy. That guy's got to be a bad guy. You know, they're in the conclave and I'm like, all these Pope possibilities are terrible. Get all these people. Like it was, you know, crazy. To watch this all unfurl, and then, of course, the most insane ending of Ewan McGregor stealing a helicopter to take it up in the air. It explodes in the air. He comes down with a with a <laughs> with a parachute. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous, and I'm with you. It was also like the most devious plan, where every tiny little minute detail had to go perfectly, or none of it would have worked at all. Same thing with the virus in the third one. I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm going to make our listeners really angry right now because I know a lot of you are young. So here's the deal. This is as convoluted as Civil War is with their bad guy. Oh my God. So all the little things that have to happen in order to get Iron Man and Captain America to that place at the end is all the little tumblers that have to happen to make you a McGregor Pope. I will crawl through this microphone and fight you now. <laughs> <laughs> to equate Angels and Demons, a legitimately terrible film, to Captain America Civil War, I'll fight you now. Who was the, who was the bad guy in Civil War? Great question. Who was it? Oh, Jay, you're the worst. Right. That's no, he right. was such a good bad guy because all he had to do was just like poke a little bit at this thing that was already tenuous. It was so great. <laughs> so, like you and McGregor, just had to he just had to poke. No, he just had to keep poking. No, because if if you McGregor was the same as the bad guy in Civil War, then he wouldn't have got onto that helicopter because he wouldn't have needed to. He would have just had the head of the Illuminati fight the head of the Catholic Church, and it would have been like this big magical battle where they're all just punching each other in the face. That's how that would have ended. And that would have been, I'm all on board for that movie, by the way. I want to see that movie a hundred times. No, no, you wouldn't want to see that movie. It'd just be two old guys slapping Nobody at each other. Nobody wants to see that movie. No. <laughs> It'd be like Voldemort fighting with Dumbledore. That's what I want to see. I think the big problem with Angels and Demons is that you don't feel like you are racing to a goal. Like, there's no treasure at the end of Angels and Demons. So you're literally... You're following the clues that there's no way you can follow at all. Like, you can't be a part of this because, you know, your symbology is not on par with Tom Hanks in this movie. I, I, I just feel like you're sitting there watching the movie happen. I never felt invested the way I did with Da Vinci Code. But I, it did spark one idea that I kept, uh, this terrible, terrible movie. And look, Civil War is not a terrible movie. I'm not saying that. I'm saying... <laughs> That it's got a crazy villain plot is what I'm saying. Now, with that said, there is an idea of like belief versus faith versus religion and all three of these words being slightly different and how, how you can believe in something but not have faith. You can have faith in something but 
not be a part of religion or you're a part of religion and you might not have either one of these things. Tim, is there any, when you were, when you were studying religion, was there anything they taught you guys or any way you felt about the differences between belief, having faith and actual religion? Well, (laughs) there are volumes of books written about those topics. Basically, basically faith and belief are Synonymous. Okay. There's a big difference between them and religion. Um, I mean, the only way I can really explain it is allegorically. <laughs> That's all right. Put those parables down, sir. <laughs> so if I if I plug my blender in at home, I believe I have faith that it will actually do the job that I want it to do. Okay. Uh, I turn it on. Yeah, it's, it's great. That's that's faith. I, I turn on my blender after I plugged it in. Okay, the difference between it and religion is if during the week I take out the manual for the blender and parse all the words looking for the underlying meanings, or if I dedicate some of my day to ritualistic worship of um, the blender because it does a wonderful job for me, <laughs> even though I don't know how it works, right? That, that, that goes back to my faith. But I develop these rituals to help me maintain my faith, to help me promote my faith. Um, I, does that help? <laughs> Doesn't help me very much. Tim, that's one <laughs> hell of a blender. That's all I'm going to well, say. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but but the point is that if uh, uh, I I don't know how my blender works. I know if it if it stops working, maybe I can get a new blender. But I really don't know how the electricity makes the motor work in it. I, I don't I don't understand that. The way you've described that really makes me feel like I've got some sort of religion based around my cell phone. I don't know how it works, but I have faith that it will. Exactly. Exactly. I'm constantly opening it up. There's definitely some sort of ritualistic thing happening between me and my cell phone. Sure. And and you probably religiously ran through the manual in it before you uh, uh, used it, right? Yeah, Church of Apple, man. What are you going to do? There you go. (laughs) Oh, man. There you go. There you go. Tim, I think you explained that, like, absolutely beautifully. Oh, okay. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, I don't want you uh, bowing down before your blender or anything or, you know, uh, getting getting all excited and religious about your light switch. That's not the point. Uh, Dad, I wanted to ask you about Paul Bettany's character in the first one. So Paul Bettany plays this like religious zealot. Uh, you know, he he beats himself. He's like very pious, I guess. But he's part of this section of the church called Opus Dei. And Opus Dei is kind of introduced in this exposition dump early in the film. And then it's kind of referred to as just this thing that everyone knows is a thing throughout the rest of the movie. And until I had been exposed to the Da Vinci Code, I'd never heard of Opus Day, so is that just my ignorance? Uh, yeah, this is uh, has absolutely to do with your ignorance. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. <laughs> uh, Opus Day is a is it's real. Um, basically, what it what it is is uh, it's a group of um, I wouldn't want to call them zealots, but people who are established as real real solid uh, disciples in the Catholic Church who are looking to bring prominence to the church through their various offices, you know, the politicians, this kind of thing. 
it, it was a real thing, and, and there was a lot of conspiracies developed around it because the Catholic Church was trying to take over the world, and, and this is how they were doing it uh, through the Opus Dei, who weren't priests, uh, and so they could go and do things that uh, normal priests couldn't. Back in the late 60s and 70s, the evangelical church in the States uh, had much the same idea. There was a a theology, a dominion theology, kingdom theology that was established in the States. And the idea there was the evangelical church was going to push, push, push to get people elected into positions of power. um, And they were going to turn the United States into a theocracy. Uh, which is a rule by God, right? So eventually the president would become similar to the Pope. It didn't happen, but you can see the effects of it even today because you got guys like Trump who who uh, really tried to sell himself to the evangelical church knowing that uh, he, if he could give them things that they wanted, um, he could gain power, and he did, despite his immoralities and so on. Holy crap, that is insanely fascinating. <laughs> Let's just have Tim on every single episode. Okay, only only if you watch Da Vinci Code every time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, and you were talking about Paul Bentney and, and uh, his lacerating himself? Yeah, there's like scenes where, you know, he at the end of his day of, you know, murdering for God, he uh, goes home and whips himself on the back and he's got like... Um, I guess some sort of thing that he straps to his uh, his legs the, that has like razors that cut into his skin. So he seems to like be punishing himself on a daily basis. Um, and the implication seems to be that like he's trying to get closer to Jesus Christ. But that, that seems to be part of his like whole like warrior ritual. Like, uh, you know, he's he's fighting for God. Yeah. I mean, back in those back in the early days, uh, um, well, not not too early, but um the Catholic Church called for penance. Um, if you wanted to um, buy your way into heaven, you could. You know, you just pay a certain amount. Uh, rich people could do that. The and and the idea of punishing yourself was just another way to do it. It was it was um, beating pen, beating the guilt out of yourself. And what what that did basically was it it. It brought people like Martin Luther to prominence um, because he was doing that. Um, and this is back in the 1500s. Uh, he was beating himself, and as he as he read the the Gospels and the New Testament, he came to realize uh, this isn't right. You don't buy your way into into heaven. You don't punish your way yourself and uh, as a way to get into heaven. And that's when Martin Luther uh, hung the theses on the door of the church and said, "No, it's by grace. It's by the grace of God. It's not by any act that you do." But there are still those zealots around in the Catholic Church that have bought into the idea of I can buy my way in. Uh, if I just do penance, if I pay a certain amount of money, if I do a certain act or a good deed or uh, whatever, if I beat myself uh, appropriately, I can show my submission to the church. And uh, it was just a way of buying your way into heaven. I mean, there was all kinds of uh, moral issues around what was called the just war. What is a just war? When is it just uh, to go out and kill people for the sake of whatever you thought was right? I had a question actually referring back to the books. Inferno seems like it really wants to trip up the audience as much as humanly possible because every 20 minutes there's a double cross or... Something changes or there's a new bad guy. 
in the books, is it the same way? Did you find that they were always tricking you? And did that make for better reads? Because obviously these books are massively popular. I honestly don't remember. So no, so that so it didn't matter. Well, I mean, the the, the point is that uh, in order for it to be an entertaining read, uh, Brown had to tie um, things that wouldn't historically be tied together. He would have to tie them together. Um, he would have to provoke. Uh, certain issues in order to make the book interesting. So apart from that, I don't know. So is that where like there's the there's the scene in Da Vinci Code? I can't remember if it's in Da Vinci Code or Angels and Demons, but it's this big scene of like a ton of guys in a big giant room debating what would and wouldn't make it into the Bible. Is that like an example of something like that? I suppose. I mean, that was uh, they they were doing that back in the. Um, uh, third and fourth century, they were trying to decide what books actually belonged in the Bible, and that was quite a deal. Um, because basically what, what would happen was uh, the Apostle Paul, for example, wrote a number of letters, uh, and they were typically uh, directed to a specific place, but um, uh, other churches in other cities would want to read uh, those letters just for the sake of their own edification. And so the letters would be copied and passed on. Well, over time, of course, the copies um, became corrupted simply because they were uh, words uh, changed or uh, words left out or uh, phrases uh, changed and so on. And so the church had a hard time deciding what was meant to be in uh, books that they considered to be um, sacred script. Sorry, just to, just to cut you off for a second, do you, when you say changes, do you mean like things that were actually changed or do you mean like poor translations? Like what do you mean by changed? Not necessarily um on purpose, more a kind of an idea of uh, okay, the the monk that copied the letter at that time didn't have uh, his coffee in the morning, and so he missed a word or he misspelled a word. It's like a game of religious telephone. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, except that except that they really really did try to make things uh, accurate, but it, it was just you know mistakes were going to happen over the centuries. I, I wanted to ask, uh, it would this happened about. I want in my brain, it's like 10 years ago, maybe 2008, maybe 2010. The book of Judas was reportedly found in the news one day. And then I never heard about it again. Did you hear about that? There were a lot of what they call Gnostic gospels. Books like the gospel according to Judas would be a um, kind of a, a letter that Judas, or whoever that was supposed to be, um, was to have received from Jesus just for him, secret knowledge that only he knew. Okay. And there was a number of those that, that came out. The Gospel of Thomas is, is quite popular today in the New Age movement because of uh, a variety of things that it says that really appeals to New Age people. The, the, prob <laughs> the problem is with those things is that there's a, a number of facts typically that are historically wrong or different from what Jesus actually espoused in the Gospels. And the, the whole idea of secret knowledge is not something that Jesus uh, ever promoted. It was all meant to be for public consumption, never, never for individuals, just for the sake of them having that special knowledge. Uh, speaking of special knowledge, 
obviously the calendar year of the Bible had, and now look, I'm going way off topic here just because I, I'm really enjoying this conversation. The calendar year of the Bible sort of corresponds a little bit to, you know, bring paganism and, and, and the pagans over to Christianity over the course of time. Were things in the Bible ever changed as well to get closer to other rela- uh, religions to pull them into Christianity? I don't think so. Uh, again, those Gnostic Gospels probably had some special knowledge that would tell people uh, see things in a certain light. But no, no, the, the the calendar that we have, the Christian calendar that we have isn't Christian at all, basically. No, it's not. It's, you know, really based on, okay, well, we still have, we have something at this time <laughs> that you celebrate as well. So come on over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you exactly. know, and it's, yeah. it was very coercive, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, oh, well, that's, I mean, all right. I will say this about Inferno and I, I don't want anybody lambasting me here. I still thought the ending was kind of thrilling. What, as far as like trying to contain the virus and... Felicity Jones trying to release the virus and running underneath the city of Vienna. I did think that that was pretty thrilling. Yeah, sure. I mean, it it turned into, I, I don't know, like a diehard movie at some point. A hundred percent. I don't think it was, it made the movie better. No. <laughs> I don't think it saved the movie. But for some reason, after an hour of sitting there going, oh my God, this is... This is real bad. It gave me this ending that I was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> I There was a couple things about Inferno that I did genuinely enjoy. I really enjoyed the reveal that Felicity Jones was the bad guy because that was the one movie in this trilogy I hadn't seen before. Through the whole first half of the movie, I'm like, it's really convenient that she knows all of this stuff. And then to have it be kind of revealed that there's a reason for that later in the movie because she's a bad guy and because she's been kind of indoctrinated into this kind of scavenger hunt by her evil boyfriend. She made more sense to me than the, you know, the Doctor Who companions from the first two movies. (laughs) Oh my god. So I did genuinely enjoy that. And you're right, the end of it was thrilling. I mean, the fact that Tom Hanks turns into Tom Cruise and is like throwing punches and stuff, I was like, it didn't really seem like it was in character for for that particular character. But yeah, like it was it was thrilling and it was exciting and it's well shot. I mean, I don't generally speaking love Ron Howard stuff. He's definitely done some things that I do love. I loved Rush. I loved Apollo 13. Um, I thought his Star Wars movie was an abomination. I can't believe you thought Solo was an abomination. Oh, Look, awful. again, it's not going to win any Oscars, but it was a fun mo- At least you got to see Chewie and Han, and I don't think it was a bad Han. I'm, not gonna, I'm going out on a limb. Not a bad Han. I liked it more than Rogue One. I thought I thought he was a fine Han. It, I didn't have any problem with the actors or, you know, the setting or the look of it. It was really just the plot. Like, it was just, sorry, what plot? There was really no plot in it either. But I also didn't enjoy that, like, Han Solo had the same arc in Solo, which takes place, what, like 10, 15, 20 years before A New Hope. He has the same arc in both movies. He learns the exact same lesson. So it really makes one or the other movie, like, kind of pointless. Well, when the next movie comes comes out and he gets bonked on the head and he has amnesia <laughs> and then he, then he has to go through the arc again. Oh my God. Obviously that's where we're going. Chris, come on. One of our mutual friends, Jay, uh, said that uh, we should try watching the new season of Archer because Archer was in a coma and he dreamt the last three seasons of Archer, which were like really crappy seasons. So I really can't wait for Star Wars to do the same thing. Han Solo wakes up and it's all but a dream and we can redo the new trilogy. Hey, speaking of plot holes, What's up with that Mickey Mouse watch? 
that never showed up in the other movies. Yeah, that was weird too. It was really prominent in Inferno, but like this was a watch that I guess was really important. Dad, was was the watch uh, important in the book? Was there some backstory there that we didn't get in the movies? Oh dear God, I read the books a long time ago. I don't remember anything about a watch. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to take that as a no then. <laughs> Look, I don't think these are movies that are going to, you're going to remember fondly. I don't think anybody's like, you know, my favorite movie of all time is that Da Vinci Code. It may be somebody's favorite book because I, I definitely think there's probably more to the character of Robert Langdon in those books. Maybe he's got more journals. Maybe he's got more Mickey Mouse watches. I don't know. But there's definitely probably more to him as a hero in those books because I, Tom Hanks kind of plays him flat, but the stories were interesting enough and they they jogged enough out of my brain as, as far as theology and big ideas to think about after the movie was over. Even Inferno, for all of its garbage, hey, we are living through a pandemic right now. It was interesting that nobody else was thinking of the overpopulation and what would happen and all, all of that stuff. You know, when this movie came out, uh, five years ago, six years ago? That actually reminds me, there was an interesting moment in Inferno where because we're currently living through a pandemic, it like got my heart racing because I got like really anxious about it. They have a they have a discussion about whether or not they've been exposed to the virus and then agree that even if they have been, they should probably still be walking around in public spaces because they could probably solve this problem instead of going and quarantining somewhere. And that like gave me panic attack vibes. Very good point. There are a lot lot of things that I watch now that have to do with some sort of like contagion. And I'm like, where are your masks? Why aren't you distanced? What is going on? <laughs> There's an interesting series on Amazon Prime right now called Utopia, and it's based on a, a UK series from a few years ago. And it's it's about a viral outbreak um, that is very uncomfortable to watch right now because I know it was all made pre-COVID and they released it earlier in the fall of 2020. But like, it's a little bit too on the nose. And so it's really good and I want to finish it, but like I want to finish it when the world isn't on fire in real life as well. So like never. Never. Yeah. Because <laughs> I feel like in five months we're going to be saying, oh my God, 2021 stop the way we did 2020. And I can't go through another 2020, Chris. Can't do it. <laughs> well, Dad, thank you so much for being on the episode with us. You're, you're, you're our first ever guest. You're also on our 51st episode, which like we didn't really make a big deal about our 50th episode, but I'm really proud of this little thing that we've made, Jay, and and that we're continuing to do it. It's a lot of fun, and um, I like hearing from people who are listening to it. So if you are listening and you haven't let us know, like leave a comment somewhere. We'd love to see it. We've got a phone number where you can leave a voicemail. Uh, it's in the notes wherever you're listening. There's show notes down at the bottom um, with a phone number where you can call in and leave a voicemail if you're so inclined. It'd be great to hear from anybody who's listening to the show. But yeah, Dad, I really want to just say thanks for like coming on and like sharing some of your education with us and like. Uh, helping me realize I'm just a dummy for not knowing what Opus Day is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really enjoyed being here. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad, Tim, because honestly, this has definitely been one of the more insightful of all of our episodes. And I am referring back to the Dracula episode where we just laughed about a werewolf all the whole time. So, <laughs> so this is way, way better. Yeah, yeah. Thank you again, Tim. Oh, you're very welcome. It was good to good to be with you guys. I, I really enjoy the podcast, by the way. I highly recommend it. Oh, thanks. Thank you. What? See, people listen. 
It may just be Chris's dad, but people listen. Next time on We Saw a Thing. Once more, I just want to thank my dad for coming on the podcast. It was really nice to have a guest who had some unique perspective on some of the stuff we were talking about this week. But looking ahead to January 28th on our next episode, we'll be talking about The Thing, the original black and white from the 50s, and the John Carpenter remake from the 80s. Are we going to like this one more than John Carpenter's Village of the Damned? I hope so. We Saw a Thing is hosted by Jay Kennedy and Chris Shapcott. Produced by Shapcott Media. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our show notes for links to our social media and credits. And leave a review on Apple Podcasts.